Well, good morning. Good to see you all, and um, it's good to be back home today. My thanks to Bobby Duke from Azusa Pacific for um, sharing and continuing our series last Sunday. I was in Boise, Idaho um, last weekend with my uh, 25-year-old son, Cole. Uh, Cole's a recent graduate of Azusa Pacific, and he was competing his last year of eligibility in the Collegiate West Coast um, rock climbing divisional championship, and uh, we had a great father-son time, and he did well enough to qualify for the national championship next month, so excited about that. But um, yeah, I'm excited, so. <laughs> While I was in Boise, I also had the opportunity to have breakfast with the very first pastor who I did my internship under um, over 30 years ago, and uh, so it was great to get reconnected with him, but it is good to be back home. Uh, You know, one of the greatest big reveals in movie history happened in the 1980 Star Wars film, The Empire Strikes Back. And it's that famous scene where Luke Skywalker is in a lightsaber battle with Darth Vader, and Darth Vader cuts off Luke's hand, and then he says those famous words to Luke, I am your father. And that reveal rocks Luke's world because Darth Vader represents everything that Luke has been fighting against his entire life. Well, today we reach the final week of our series and we reach the big reveal in our series on the life of Joseph, this series that we've called What God Intends for Good. Um, but before we get to the big reveal, let, let's reveal where, or let's re, uh, review where we've been the last couple of weeks. Um, since the beginning of Lent, the first Sunday in Lent, um, we've been looking at the story of Joseph from the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Um, and when we first meet Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, he's an entitled teenager. Um, because of his own immaturity and because of his father Jacob's um, favoritism of Joseph, Joseph's ten older brothers grow to hate him, um, and Joseph's dreams about ruling over all of his brothers don't help matters um, as he tells them his dreams, and they hate him all the more. So when Joseph is 17 years old, his older brothers conspire to sell him as a slave and tell his father Jacob a lie that Joseph was killed by wild animals. And so Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt, and he went from the top in life, the favored son, to the bottom in life. He's sold to an Egyptian official named Potiphar, and Joseph becomes one of thousands of foreign slaves that were held within Egypt. But as Joseph's circle of influence shrunk, his integrity grew. And after more than a decade in slavery, um, uh, some of those years falsely imprisoned, Joseph experiences a great reversal. It all started with the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who has some bad dreams one night. And Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dream as predicting that there will be seven years of great prosperity followed by seven years of terrible famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed that he promotes Joseph to be his second-in-command. He empowers Joseph to come up with a plan to prepare for the coming seven years of famine. 
Joseph is given an Egyptian name. He's given authority over all of Egypt. He's, he's given his own personal chariot. He's given an Egyptian wife. And together with his wife, they have two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And during the seven years of abundance, Joseph stores up all the excess grain. And when the famine comes, it's bad, just as Joseph predicted it would be. The worst famine that anyone has ever seen. In fact, all of the surrounding communities face malnutrition and the possibility of starvation. And because of Joseph's leadership, Egypt has food for their people and they have food to sell to the surrounding peoples. This famine that impacted the entire ancient Near East also impacted the land of Canaan where Joseph's father and brothers all lived. And as the famine grew worse, Joseph's father Jacob sends his ten older sons, the, the very sons who betrayed Joseph and sold him as a slave, he sends them to Egypt to buy food so they don't starve to death. And Joseph recognizes his brothers immediately when they get to Egypt, but they don't recognize him. After all, it's been decades and out of sight, out of mind, and Joseph is dressed like an Egyptian now. And Joseph treats his brothers harshly. He falsely accuses them of being spies. He, he locks them up for a period of time. And then he finally sells them food. But Joseph also puts his brothers to the test. He demands that they bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, back with them if they ever want to come back and buy food. In fact, Joseph imprisons Simeon, one of the older brothers, to ensure that if they ever come back, they, they come back with Benjamin. Back in Canaan, Jacob refuses to send Benjamin essentially trading Simeon's life for his youngest son Benjamin's life. But as the famine grows worse and worse and the whole family is malnourished and at risk of starving to death, in desperation, Jacob finally sends his sons, all of them, back to Egypt to buy more food. Joseph imprisons Benjamin to see if the older brothers will betray Benjamin the same way they betrayed Joseph. Last Sunday, Bobby, who's an Old Testament scholar from APU, invited us to reflect on our relationships during the season of Lent by looking at the brothers' encounter with Joseph. Today, we're going to see the big reveal as Joseph reveals himself and who he is to his brothers and as we finish this series today from Genesis 45 through 50, the end of the book, we're going to see some ways that trusting in God's providence can help us move forward in our lives. And so if you're able, I want to invite you, would you stand with me for a reading from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. 
And Joseph wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, Joseph said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You can be seated. Here we find Joseph finally reunited with all 11 of his brothers, the the 10 older ones who betrayed him and sold him, and his youngest brother, Benjamin. And he's so overcome with emotion, he wants a private moment. And so he sends everyone out. And in that private moment, he reveals himself. As Bobby showed us last week, the older brothers have already been thinking and reflecting on their guilt over their treatment of Joseph. Their betrayal of Joseph and their lie to their father Jacob has defined everything about their lives for decades. As Walter Brueggemann, a Bible scholar, says that the older brothers are harnessed to their past up to this moment. And so now they're terrified. As the old saying goes, the chickens have finally come home to roost, which is a way of saying that the past has finally caught up with them. Decades earlier, they had thrown Joseph into a pit and then sold him to slave merchants. They had all the power. Joseph had none of the power. And now the tables are turned. They're desperate. Their families, their children and grandchildren are malnourished and starving to death. And here the person that they harmed all those years ago, stands in front of them with the power of life and death over them. Joseph's dreams have come true. But in this moment, Joseph shows them grace. He speaks kindly to them. And notice again what he says in verse 5. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me. That's really a remarkable thing for Joseph to say in this moment. Because after all, wasn't it his older brothers in an act of treachery and hateful betrayal? They're the ones that sent him to Egypt. And yet, in this moment, Joseph can see that ultimately it was God who sent him, not his brothers. Now, let me summarize the next couple of chapters to get us to chapter 50. In chapters 46 and 47, Jacob's family, all of them, join Joseph in Egypt. The the brothers return to their father in Canaan with news that Joseph is alive and well in Egypt. And the power of the lie that they told to their father years ago is finally broken. And so instead of staying in Canaan to starve to death, Jacob and his family, 70 people in all, Genesis says, travel to Egypt where they can live and where they have food to eat. And the grieving father and the long-lost son are finally reunited in Egypt. In chapter 48, Jacob adopts 
Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And by adopting Manasseh and Ephraim as his own, Jacob puts these two grandsons, Joseph's sons, on the same level as Joseph's other brothers. He confirms Joseph's sons as true Hebrews, even though their mother is Egyptian and they've been raised as Egyptians. And Manasseh and Ephraim will eventually become two of the tribes within the nation of Israel, each with their own inheritance of land. In fact, centuries later, the military leader Joshua would be born from the tribe of Ephraim. And the famous soldier Gideon would be born of the tribe of Manasseh. In chapter 49, Jacob gathers all of his sons, including Ephraim and Manasseh, and blesses them. And each blessing that he gives to each son reminds them that their future is not in Egypt, but back in the land of Canaan. In fact, when he gets to his fourth son, Judah, Jacob gives this blessing to Judah in Genesis 49.10. He says to Judah, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between Judah's feet, until he to whom that staff belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations will be his. Judah's blessing, Jacob's blessing to Judah, points to the coming of Jesus, who would be born from the tribe of Judah, who would be the one to whom the scepter, the king's scepter belongs, and the obedience of all the nations will one day be his. The end of chapter 49 Jacob, the great patriarch, dies in Egypt. And right before he dies, he asks his son to carry his remains out of Egypt and back to Canaan to be buried there. And so Joseph and his brothers carry Jacob's body back to Canaan to bury him according to his wishes. And that leads us to our final reading today, Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before Joseph. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And Joseph reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's older brothers are suddenly afraid that now that their father has died, that Joseph is going to seek revenge. There's, there's an old saying that, you know, um, revenge is a dish best served cold. They wonder, what if Joseph has been waiting patiently 
for just the right moment to pay them back for all the wrong they've done. And so they come up with a scheme. They, they send Joseph a message that their father Jacob's dying wish was that they that Joseph forgive them. And the text doesn't tell us whether this was really Jacob's dying wish or not. I kind of doubt it. I think they just made that up to, to try to protect themselves. And once again, in verse 18, they throw themselves at Joseph's feet, once again, in fulfillment of the dream that he had back in chapter 37. And Joseph is overcome with emotion once again and urges them to stop being afraid. Verse 20, which is the inspiration for the title for the series that, that we're in right now. Joseph admits that, that his brothers intended to harm him. In fact, the Hebrew word for harm in verse 20 is the Hebrew word for evil. They intended evil. It was evil for them to hate him. It was evil for them to conspire to sell him as a slave. It was evil for them to deceive their father that Joseph was dead. But God intended it for good, the opposite of the evil that they intended. The good God intended, in verse 20, goes even beyond what Joseph can see in this moment. I mean, Joseph could see the good was keeping people alive, keeping them from starving, both in Egypt and his own family from dying. And, and Joseph could probably see the good of keeping God's promise to Abraham moving forward. But centuries later, when Jewish people read this story, they see the good Joseph is talking about that God intended was to take this obscure family of 70 people and to eventually build them into a great nation, the nation of Israel. And when we read this story as Christians and we read verse 20, we see the good as not only creating the nation of Israel, but out of Israel bringing Jesus into our world. The good God intended was for your good and my good, for the good of the entire earth. And so Joseph reassures them that they are safe. And then Genesis 50 ends with Joseph dying in Egypt. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. The Joseph story is an invitation for us to trust in the providence of God. And uh, in the first week of our series, I defined God's providence as God's loving care and protection of all creation to fulfill God's good purposes. His loving care and protection of our world, of your life, of our lives, in order to fulfill His purposes for the world. As Christians, we believe that we live under the providence of God, God's loving care and preservation of creation. And learning to trust in the providence of God means learning to live by faith that God is lovingly guiding our lives and our church and our family and our community and our world under His loving care to accomplish His purposes. Are you learning to trust in God's providence in your life? Are you learning to trust in the providence of God in your family, in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world? 
Let's consider a couple of ways that trusting in the providence of God helps us move forward in the Christian life. Four ways. First, trusting in God's providence helps us forgive those who wrong us. This doctrine of divine providence that the Bible teaches, especially in the Joseph story, helps us forgive. That's what happened in Joseph's life. Now, forgiveness is a process, to be sure. When Joseph's brothers first arrive in Egypt, forgiveness is the last thing on Joseph's mind. Joseph treats them harshly. He plants false evidence on them. He accuses them. He locks them up. But by chapter 45, Joseph is ready to forgive. And he reaffirms that forgiveness in chapter 50 after their brother Jacob dies. Joseph lets go of the hurt that was caused by the evil actions of his ten older brothers. Joseph still calls it what it is. You intended it for evil. He doesn't whitewash what it was. But he acknowledges that it is God's place to hold his brothers accountable for the evil that they have done. It's not his own place. Am I in the place of God, he asks? No. All of us are wronged by people in life. And when we don't learn to trust in the providence of God, we become tangled up in our own resentments. We become captive to the hurts and the wrongs that we have experienced through the choices and decisions of other people. And like a poison, that resentment begins to seep into our lives and into our relationships and into our outlook and into our relationship with God. We're not in the place of God any more than Joseph was. The Bible urges us to leave room for God's justice when we are wronged. Trusting in God's providence helps us work through the process of forgiveness. Second, trusting in God's providence also helps us experience God's presence in our pain. Experiencing God's presence in our pain. No matter how spiritually mature you and I may be, we will all go through seasons in our lives where God feels absent. Times when reading the Bible feels like just pages or just words on a page, when praying feels empty, when, when being in church feels lonely. Maybe some of you are feeling that way right now. I'm certain that God's presence felt far away when Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers, when he was sold like an animal at the slave market in Egypt, when he was assaulted by Potiphar's wife and then falsely accused, thrown into prison and forgotten. Imagine how he'd feel. Desperation, hopelessness, bitterness, betrayal, anger. Maybe you're feeling some of those things right now. Joseph encountered the presence of God in these painful spaces because he was learning to trust in God's providence. He learned to trust that God was present in moments where God felt the most absent. Centuries ago, there was a Christian named Juan de la Cruz who was in Spain and he called these experiences dark nights. 
can't think of a better way to describe them. Every Christian goes through dark nights. In fact, Dela Cruz said it was a mark of spiritual maturity to go through dark nights. And Dela Cruz reminds us that God is present in moments of dark nights in hidden and unseen ways. Trusting in God's providence helps us experience God's presence during those dark nights. Third, trusting in God's providence helps us find our place in God's plan. It helps us find where we belong in the plan of God. Joseph had dreams, but he only discerned his unique place in the plan of God in the affliction of Egypt. Affliction is where we often discover our unique place in the world and in the plan of God. Affliction is where David discovered his calling to be king, where Esther found her calling to be an advocate, where Deborah experienced her calling to be a leader, where Nehemiah found his calling to rebuild the walls, where Mary discovered her calling to give birth to Jesus, where Paul discovered his calling to be an apostle. These men and women trusted the providence of God in the midst of their affliction, and there they found their purpose in the world. You see, believing in God's providence is very different than believing in fate. Those who believe in fate feel like they're just pawns on someone else's chessboard. Puppets in an already predetermined plan with someone else pulling the strings. That's not divine providence. Providence is the idea that God is working and He will fulfill His good purposes in the world, but that we can be part of that. That we can join Him. That we have a role to play in the fulfillment of those good purposes. Finally, trusting in God's providence helps us look to the future with faith. Helps us look to the future with faith. Joseph was able to see how God was going to work even beyond his lifetime. It, it, we find this actually in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, in the New Testament, it says this, By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, when he was all, almost to his time of dying, Joseph spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. See, Joseph knew that his people would one day, generations later, leave Egypt and return to Canaan. And he was so sure of it, he gave instructions for them to take his remains with them so he could be buried with his father Jacob back in the land of Canaan. Egypt tried to claim Joseph's identity, gave him an Egyptian name, an Egyptian family. But he knew that he was still the son of Jacob the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham. When we don't trust in the providence of God, all we can see is what's right in front of us. And we live in panic because we're constantly trying to control things, control other people, control our circumstances, control our government, control um, ourselves. We try to control everything because we think that it's all up to us. 
But trusting in the providence of God enables us to see with the eyes of faith beyond what we can see with our physical eyes. Even beyond our own lifetime. Joseph's big reveal to his brothers reminds us that it was ultimately God who brought him to Egypt. And there, Joseph discovered he was part of a bigger plan. He learned to trust in the providence of God. And his trust in divine providence is what enabled him to forgive, to find God's presence in his pain, to find his unique place in the plan of God, and to look to the future with faith. Without learning to trust in the providence of God, Joseph would have become vengeful and bitter. He would have only experienced God's absence. He would have forfeited and lost his place in God's plan. And he would have only seen despair in the future. Have you ever seen a tapestry before? The front of a tapestry is a work of art created by a skillful weaver who creates images with incredible detail and tapestry. But if you look at the back of a tapestry, it's kind of a mess. All these random threads. The events of our lives, the events of our world, the events around us, often look like the back of a tapestry. Messy and random. Disconnected, without meaning or purpose. But God's vantage point on our lives and on the events of our world is like looking at the front of the tapestry that He is creating. God is the skillful weaver who's creating a tapestry in our lives and in our families and in our church and in our community and in our world that will ultimately display His love and His goodness and His glory. But in this life, our vantage point is always the back of the tapestry. It's only God who sees the front. Can we trust in the providence of God in our lives and in our world when all we see is the back of the tapestry? Can we live by faith that one day we, like God, will see the front of the tapestry of our lives, our families, our church, and our world? That's what Joseph learned to do. And it made all the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words and stories that are ultimately not about Joseph and not about Jacob and not about his brothers, but that are about you. That you are a faithful God. That you work through the extraordinary and you work through the ordinary. You work in miracles and you work in things that seem like they're coincidences. And that even things that others intend for evil, you use for good. And as we think about taking the bread and the cup of communion, ordinary elements of a loaf of bread and a chalice of juice 
that you use those things, common elements, to strengthen us with the body and the blood of Jesus, to nourish our faith. Father, we trust you, and we pray these things in Christ's name.